This is What Book Hooked You. I'm Brock Shelley, and thanks for listening. This week I'm talking to Greg Van Eekhout, whose newest middle grade, Weird Kid, will be out on July the 20th. And so, in this episode, Greg and I get into some of his early inspirations in as far as the books that he was really into, uh, and how he came to write middle grade and what is involved in that. So really enjoyed talking to Greg. So listen in. So Greg, what book hooked you? Well, uh, when, you, when I knew that I was going to be on this podcast, it was kind of fun because I could actually give some thought to what books hooked me. And there were a lot of like really quality books that I thought I might talk about, like um, Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin or big classics that everybody's read, like The Hobbit. But to be honest with myself, I thought like, what book really is the one that uh, I talk about most uh, in my life when I'm reminiscing? And it's The Last Son of Krypton by Elliot S. Magan. So I did a little digging into the history of this book. So Elliot S. Magan was a writer at DC Comics throughout the 70s and in the early 80s, which is when I started reading comics. And he had around, I guess, 1974, written a treatment for what he hoped would be a Superman movie. He hoped he would get to write a Superman movie. Uh, As it turned out, that assignment got handed to Mario Puzo. Of course, the the godfather is a big name, so Elliot S. Nagan was sad. So he took his treatment uh, to the offices upstairs at DC Comics, and the executive said, like, well, why don't you just write it up as a novel and we'll put it out? Because I guess that's how decisions were made back then. It was just a guy at a desk, probably smoking a cigar and drinking a lunchtime cocktail. Yeah, just put it out as a novel. So he did that. He wrote it up as a novel. Um, It came out uh, the same day that Superman, the motion picture, uh, was released. And the way it's packaged, Christopher Reeve is on the cover. Um, the version of the logo they use, the Superman logo, is the same one they used in the movie. So I don't really recall this, but I probably picked it up thinking it was a Superman mm-hmm. novelization. Um, I was big into media tie-ins at the time. They were probably sure. my introduction to science fiction, the, the Star Wars books, you know, Splinter of the Mind's Eye by Alan Dean Foster, uh, a lot of Star Trek books. I had access to old paperbacks. So I was even reading novelizations of the original Planet of the Apes movies like not just the first one, but like all the obscure ones. I love that stuff. Uh, What Last Son of Krypton did is it did not retcon, it did not change, it did not darken the Superman story. It just added to it and it made it more interesting and intelligent. So one example is Jor-El didn't just shoot his kid out in a rocket, uh, just like, I'll just shoot a rocket in Kansas and see what happens. Being the most preeminent scientist of his planet, he felt that the best person to raise his super son would be the most preeminent scientist on Earth. So using Kryptonian technology, he contacts Albert Einstein and he says, "Uh, I'm launching my kid at you and I think you should raise my kid. Uh, Albert Einstein was not only intelligent, he was wise and he realizes I am the last person on Earth who should be raising a superpowered, godlike creature. So he locates the coordinates where the rocket is landing, which is Kansas for some reason. I don't know why he didn't just send the rocket to Princeton, New Jersey, where Einstein was. And he's in a farm store and he comes across Jonathan and Martha Kent. So he concocts this uh, lie that he says, I wanna sell you a tractor. And if you meet me at these coordinates, I'll sell you that tractor. Uh, So the Kents show up, Einstein 
completely ghosts them, uh, and the rocket lands. And Einstein is responsible for Superman being raised by this good, uh, moral, kind couple. And that's why we have the Superman we know today. And I thought when I was whatever I was when I read that somewhere between the age of eight and 10, I thought that was just the most brilliant writing I had ever come across. Um, it didn't violate anything about my idea of who or what Superman was. And at the time, the Superman comics were honestly just kind of cheesy and goofy right. and not really that honestly intelligent. This added a level of intelligence and thought to the character that I thought was really cool. And I don't know, I couldn't make a one-to-one -one correspondence between reading that and anything that affected my approach to writing because I was too young and sure. my brain was still soft. My skull hadn't even really you know, fused yet. Um, in another instance, the uh, what Megan did is the Luthor origin story. And the original origin story was pretty simple. Uh, he and Clark Kent and Superboy were friends in Smallville. Superboy builds him a science lab. Um, the lab catches fire because Luthor does something probably stupid. Superboy puts it out. Luthor loses all his hair and he hates Superman. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a, it's a pretty thin motivation. Uh, Megan added just this one extra element that the experiment Luthor was working on was artificial life. He had actually succeeded in creating life. So when Superboy puts out that fire, he kills Lex's baby. It's a really... It doesn't violate anything that had been set before. It doesn't retcon anything, but it adds this really great human element and adds depth to the story. Just that simple change or that simple addition. I just thought that was really groovy. So I have the, um, we're not on video, but I, I, I have the copy in my hand and this is not the original copy. This is a very old falling apart mm -hmm. copy, which is actually the replacement copy for my original that it uh, became unglued and at a certain point was just, um, it was confetti. It was not even worth keeping or storing even for sentimental value. I read this book probably three times a year for maybe four or five summers in a row sitting out in a hammock in my backyard. So that's the one that's probably most deeply embedded in my DNA. That's fantastic. I love that. And so because you mentioned not only that book, but also, you know, a few of the others like the Planet of the Eight books, did that typically kind of was that the basic outline for a lot of your reading life that it was always based on another established IP? I'll just say it uh, that plainly, like whether it was Planet of the Apes or Star Trek, that it was always like you were into books that were already uh, a thing in the culture. Well, I, I was most into those books. I, I was like probably like most of your guests. I read a lot when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. My um my mom was great at taking us to the library. We lived maybe three short blocks in Venice, California from the, from the library. So I was reading all sorts of stuff. My mom signed up for the kids book clubs. So there were always books in the house and I was always reading those. But uh, I didn't really make a distinction in, in reading between reading prose novels and reading comic books mm. and Mad Magazine. And those comic books and, and Mad Magazine probably were the things I preferred reading. Um, sure. Just because, you know, the, the colors and the characters right. and, the, and the goofiness and the unabashed. Uh, there was no expectation that it was supposed to be good for you. Uh, there were no like Newberry committees looking mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. Justice League of America comics. It was just great, goofy, big, imaginative, explosive fun. And I, I was really attracted to that. So I think what those media tie-ins did for me is it reproduced that experience while also probably on some level, although I, would, I wouldn't have been able to say this at the time, adding a level of depth and intelligence that enhanced, that it was a great addition to the comics and stuff that I was reading. And also there was just, I wanted more of it. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, Star Trek at the time, there was just 
the three seasons of the original series um, that they would show like, I don't know, after the evening news and before dinner time. And that was all the Star Trek I could get. So if you could get the books, well, that was providing things uh, that I wanted that would not be fulfilled until much, much later with a bunch of motion pictures and a bunch of spin-off series. So yeah, I think it was not necessarily that I thought like I need something that already exists. It's just, I wanted more of what already existed. Mm-hmm. And so when you think like, I always kind of think when I look at kind of the cultural landscape of the day, how many of these things, whether it be super superhero stuff or Star Trek, Star Wars, like how much just, whether it's in book form or graphic novel form, how much it is and how much it's at the forefront of culture. When you kind of reflect back on what it was like for you finding this stuff, because you were obviously for, for like the Star Trek and the Star Wars books, those were adult uh, those are written to an adult audience mainly. Um, and now you can find similar things for for targeted age groups. Does it kind of like blow your mind just how far culture has come to what you were kind of into at the time? Yeah, I, I mean, um, what used to be kind of niche, used to be sort of a, a weird hobby is, at least in terms of entertainment, is the dominant genre force uh, in our current culture, I mean, the hugest movies and the biggest TV series are genre, and there's so much of it you can't turn around without bumping into it. Um, I, th- I think at the time I wasn't aware that there wasn't a lot of it because I just knew where to go to find mm. it. You just went to the right section, and the other sections of the bookstore, which were like much bigger than the science fiction sure. section, or uh, I didn't care about them. Like you know, th- those were like weird those I didn't even recognize those as books those are just weird <laughs> objects around the shelves sort of as decoration <laughs> for, sure. around the science fiction sections or the comic book stores and when you then kind of got more because you said you were probably maybe 10 when you read Sun of Krypton when you moved more into your uh, young adulthood um, did reading stay an important part of your life or did you kind of uh, fall to the wayside because of of other things, whether that be school or any other interests or activities you had? No, I never really lost that. We had this cool bookstore. Uh, in, I, I grew up in Southern California, um, Venice, Culver City, West LA. And we had this cool bookstore called the Paperback Library, which was just a bookstore where they just sold mass market paperbacks. Um, so once I moved once I discovered that in the same sections where there were all those Star Trek books and the Superman book, then I started finding um, things like Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, Harlan Ellison, you know, things that don't, I don't feel hold up today and aren't mm-hmm. things that I would necessarily give to a, a young reader if I wanted to get them excited about science fiction or fantasy or even reading. But there was a continuum that you could follow and you could go from that. And then the ones that were like just thicker books uh, that looked a little more complicated, like, you know, Arthur C. Clarke. And from there to the big things like Stephen King. Mm. And that sort of uh, bridged, there was, there was sort of a continuum from media tie-ins and comic books to things that were genre and tickled a lot of the same itches, mm. or I guess scratched rather than tickled the itches that I had. It was uh, doing it just on a, on a bigger, more mainstream level. Um, but uh, yeah, reading has always been has always been an important, uh, a significant part of my diet, along with TV and movies. Mm. And I, I never really 
made a distinction between it was just absorbing stories in a slightly different format. Sure. And then at what point did this idea of writing your own stories kind of grab hold of you and you started pursuing that in some way? Yeah, well, in fourth grade or so, uh, I, 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 want, I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you that I wanted to be a writer or I wouldn't have been able to tell you that I wanted to be a storyteller when I was eight, nine, whatever. But there was clearly that kind of urge, you know, and it came out from drawing my own versions of superheroes and writing out descriptions of what their powers were and their origin story and their history. Um, but I wasn't really writing actual uh, like stories, you know, sentences, paragraphs. I call it my proto writing years. <laughs> Uh, but then in, when I was about 10, uh, we took a little family trip to Catalina Island, which is the sort of resort island off the coast of Los Angeles. And we were doing a bus tour. And uh, the bus tour took us by Zane Gray's house. Zane Gray was a turn of the century uh, Western writer. He was a huge, huge bestseller Western writer. And I remember the tour guide pointed out the house. And I remember thinking the house was cool. Now, in respect, what... I actually thought was Zane Gray's house was actually the Wrigley mansion belonging to mm-hmm. Wrigley, the guy that um, made a fortune from chewing gum, which was an mm-hmm. actual mansion. And so there's some combination of the Wrigley mansion looking like a really cool lifestyle and wanting to tell stories and hitting that age when I was discovering Star Wars that all sort of coalesced with this idea that being a writer would be a cool thing to be. And then in junior high uh, and through high school, uh, writing assignments, creative writing were my favorite things. And I was getting the pats on the back from the teachers and the positive reinforcement. But it wasn't probably until late high school, early college that I was starting to realize that this was actually a job. This was a career that people could do. And they're not necessarily going to live in a Wrigley mansion, but this can be something they can do to occupy their days um, nine to five. So I started writing short stories, finishing short stories, researching how the market, how the business actually works, uh, submitting short stories to magazines, collecting those big stacks of rejection letters. Mm -hmm. And I think then I was at least, it took a long time till I was published and a long time till anybody was willing to pay me any actual money for writing. But I think by late high school, I was kind of on that road. And I had to do a lot of other things, obviously, throughout my life, because sure. uh, that's a that's a difficult road to, to climb. It's a difficult hill to climb and succeed at. Uh, but at least I knew that I had to put in the effort and pay the dues and do all those mm. things and put in the 10,000 hours or a million hours or whatever it is now to get right. the data. And when you were in that high school, college time, when you kind of had the realization that you know this would take work and, and it was something you were willing to pursue. Was there a book or a writer when you looked at it, you kind of could hold that up and say, this is what I, this is my end goal to be, to write this type of book, to be this writer, you know, was that something you could identify? Yeah. Well, you know, Stephen King had short story collections and the forewords or the afterwords were really about the nuts and bolts of the craft in his career history and the sitting down at the typewriter, you know, him sending out uh, these short stories that were originally published in men's magazines for just a couple of bucks. And like the, the check would arrive just in time for him to pay the gas bill so that he didn't get turned off in the trailer was he, where he was living. So it sort of modeled the sort of kind of working class blue collar, put your butt in the chair 
and type things and lick envelopes, you know, steal envelopes, lick stamps, send things out. So even I, I even though I didn't necessarily want to be Stephen King in terms of the kind of work I wanted to produce, uh, that was the sort of model that I had. The, the other attractive thing about Stephen King was he was a bestseller at the age of 26. And that changed his life forever and he became Stephen King. And so I sort of had an assumption that like, well, you know, I'm, I'm 19, I'm 20, I'm 22 now. I only have to keep this up, this this struggle, <laughs> this, this epic struggle for success for a few more years. And then I'm going to hit pay dirt and it's, uh, it's going to be easy from then on. That did not happen. But that was kind of the model. That was maybe not the best model to pick one of the most famous and successful writers sure, sure. Uh, of yeah, the era. And so then what... If, if you were kind of looking at Stephen King, but it wasn't the type of, of books you saw yourself writing at that time, what, what was that category, genre, type of book that you were envisioning and kind of trying at? I was casting about because I was developing some skills in how to structure a story. And more, more than that, I was developing skills in how to write a, a clever sentence that hopefully would impress people. Um, so I was thinking that I was going to be some kind of uh, chimera, that I would be doing genre stuff, but I would also have literary respectability. Mm. And at the same time, I would have commercial success. So there was a movement briefly uh, in horror called splatterpunk, which was both awfully gross because it was the most extreme, viscerally disgusting stuff that I was really digging. And at the same time, uh, at least their discourse among those splatterpunk writers is they were making a case that this was stuff that had literary merit because it was testing the extremes of what was acceptable and it was pushing the boundaries and um, to disturb somebody was, in a, uh, was an artistically noble goal. And so I was probably modeling myself on that sort of thing. Um, and then gradually I sort of started discovering my own voice and a realization that I was actually only disgusting and disturbing myself. <laughs> so I kind of dropped that. And then it was really a long time of trying to figure out what kind of book I wanted to write. Um, another book that sort of hit me uh, in a really positive way was uh, Lord of Light by uh, Zelazny. Uh, which was science fiction. It was um, really just uh, inventive and imaginative and readable. And it dealt with mythology. And I was sort of really getting into mythology at the time. I had taken a class in college on Norse mythology. And I thought like, what if I could take Norse mythology and kind of combine it with that sort of Zelazny feel, uh, something that could be sold in the science fiction fantasy section of most bookstores. It would not seem weird. It would just seem in place. And that, that became a short story that I wrote called uh, Wolves Till the World Goes Down. I, uh, I remember there was a, I can't remember the name of it, but there was a novel or the short story critiquing online group and I submitted it and it got absolutely savaged, absolutely savaged. Um, so I sort of quit writing for a little while. I don't know how long it seems to be that I quit writing for five years. It was probably like a month that I felt really <laughs> bad and that I was just, I'm not doing this anymore. I'll show them. I won't give them my brilliant work. Um, but uh, there was a, uh, an opportunity to go to a writing workshop, a week-long writing workshop. It was like the Clarion Workshop, which is like a six-week workshop for writers of short stories um, in science fiction and fantasy. This is a week-long one called Bible Paradise. And I thought like, you know, I could probably do that. So I submitted that story and it, was, it did not get savaged. Um, 
and eventually one of the instructors, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, who's an editor at Tor Books, bought it for an anthology. And uh, I thought maybe that was worth trying to turn it into a novel. So I sort of found my way into like sort of my version of science fiction fantasy, which is kind of like contemporary, modern day. It sort of bleeds into the edge of urban fantasy. Um, it's, uh, it's I, I like the, I, I like big ideas, big themes. And that kind of became my sort of for a while while I was writing adult fiction. I think that more or less became my brand of science fiction fantasy. Hmm. So you're, you're really kind of concentrated on uh, adult science fiction. What then, what was then the turn or what was the shift that you then got into writing uh, for, for kids? There was sort of an, uh, I hadn't really been able to put it into words or sharp images, but I had a desire to, to do media for kids. Professionally, uh, I got a degree in multimedia development. Um, you know, CD-ROMs were a big thing, interactive multimedia CD-ROMs. Uh, and I thought those would be fun to do. They would be, I was doing them for kids. Uh, our, our, our target audience at the company I worked with, with was K through 12. Um, it was not satisfying experience just because of the company, not because of the actual work itself. And uh, I realized that that may be something to explore in writing. So that was one thing. The other thing was that my idea of a publishing career was that your first book comes out, it completely tanks. You have to rebrand, you have to change your name and if you write something completely different. So before my first book, Norse Code, even hit the shelves, I was already re preparing to, to rebrand for what I was sure would be a completely like uh, failure of a career. So I came up with a story idea that was an expansion of a flash piece I'd done. It just felt right that this ought to be um, uh, what I thought was a YA book. Uh, it turned out I was wrong. It's actually a middle grade book. I didn't understand the distinction between middle grade and young adult then. Uh, and weirdly, that one got picked up and published too. So then I was in a two book middle grade contract. So then I had to write, a, I had to write another one because I didn't want to give the money back. Uh, and then I thought I would be clever and not put all my eggs in one basket. So I thought like, okay, well, I did an adult and then I did two middle grades and I should go back and do some adults. So I did uh, another expansion of a short story I sold. Uh, the short story was the Osteomancer's Son in Asimov's and I expanded that in the California Bones trilogy. Uh, and then I realized I missed writing that middle grade when I was on book three of that trilogy, I realized, you know what, I really enjoyed writing that middle grade. So, and also I figured like, it's probably not a great career move to continually swerve and lose whatever audience you've built and lose whatever momentum you've had. So I've decided I love middle grade. Uh, I love the audience. I love interacting with the kids. I feel I have a good connection with who I was at that age, about 10, 12, which is the age range for middle grade. So at least for now, that's where my focus is going to stay but I never say never because you know sometimes <laughs> sure. I want to use the f word in a book I really <laughs> do when I finished those two middle grade books and I went to writing the writing California Bones the first draft of the first chapter and the first few pages I had probably dropped about 17 f-bombs just because I could it was ridiculous <laughs> and excessive uh, but there is something about being able to um, not have to moderate your language sure. and being able to write as uh, gross as you want <laughs> that is a little 
a little freeing. It's a, it's a nice way to stretch. So at some point I might be writing some more adult uh, books. And, and I still continue to write short fiction and short fiction really, it's a very minimum stakes. You know, mm. your career is not made or broken by a short story that nobody likes or that doesn't sell. So that's a really just pure creative outlet. So I can sort of write anything I want without mm. really fearing any repercussions or ramifications. Sure, makes sense. Well, your newest uh, middle grade uh, is called Weird Kid. It comes out on July the 20th. Let's start talking about that. And first, give me a sense of what this book's about. Well, it's about uh, an alien kid growing up in regular modern day suburban society. So he, uh, it's interesting. This actually does tie into Superman quite a bit because uh, his, he's sent, he, we don't know how, but he is sent to earth as a baby all by himself. He's a blob of goo. That's the form of his natural form of the species. And he splash lands on the outskirts of a suburban housing development outside Phoenix, Arizona. He's found by a kindly, moral, kind couple who raised them as their own. Um, he is, has shape-shifting abilities, which is fine, kind of fun. It's okay for the first 12 years of his life, but on his, uh, when he's approaching middle grade, the first day of school, he starts losing control over his ability to hold a human form, which is uh, alarming to him and scary and also very embarrassing and threatening because people will, under, will will learn his secret that he's an alien. And what it draws on is I felt in elementary school, my elementary school went from grade one to grade six. And uh, by grade six, I felt like I pretty much had mastered the whole idea mm -hmm. of being a person and a student and a kid at school. I felt fine. I had good self-esteem. I was confident. I was popular. I'm not popular. I wasn't being asked out to do whatever popular sixth graders do, whatever that is, but I was happy. Um, and then something happened to the world that summer, between that summer and seventh grade, because when I landed on seventh grade, everything was weird. Mm. I didn't understand uh, the way you were supposed to act, the way you were supposed to speak, the way you were supposed to dress, as if like there had been a bulletin sent out in summer telling people, this is what you are have to sure. be like now. And I didn't get that bulletin. So I felt for the first time, not just uh, weird in a fun way, I felt weird in like, I, like I don't feel good about myself or the world or the other people around me. That was a really uncomfortable experience. Uh, so I drew on that experience with weird kid. That's the essential experience of this kid is feeling weird in middle school at a time when your body is changing and the world is changing around you. And at the same time, he's an alien kid and there's a private research company in town that seems uh, excessively interested in him. There are sinkholes opening up all over town and there's a weird goo that oozes out of the sinkholes that sort of suspiciously like him in his goo form. So it's a, it's a caper, it's an adventure, it's an examination of what it feels like to be that age and feel weird. Um, and it, I, I had a lot of fun writing it. It feels like a long time ago since I wrote that book, just because of public mm. publishing schedules. I've sure. written a whole nother book since then, <laughs> and I'm starting to work on the next books. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it finally coming out. Mm. And so... When you're approaching a middle grade book, um, having been a writer uh, of, of adult uh, novels and also writing short stories, 
is it a different process for you in writing a middle grade book? Um, in as far as not so much the content and, and thinking about the audience, or maybe that is a big, the big part of it, but just in the process, like, is there a different planning, a different approach that you find yourself taking when you're tackling a new middle grade project? It's pretty much the same thing. The important things to me are that you find out not necessarily who your character is in their entire backstory and history, but you find out who they are at the moment the story starts and that starts with their voice. Uh, if I can hear their voice and write in the way they think and get their sense of humor and get their sort of personality and attitude, then that tells me that I now have a character I can latch onto that's gonna carry me through the story. And that's the same whether it's middle grade or adult. And then the other thing that I'm trying to pay more attention to as I go on is uh, not just having a theme, not just having sort of an underlying bedrock of what the story is about, but actually having a theme that reflects something important I want to say. Because I realize, you know, even if uh, a prolific author, you only have a certain number of chances in a lifetime to tell a story. And books take a long time. So it's really not that many chances. It's not like you have most writers do not have a hundred chances to tell a story. So mm -hmm. it's important for me to say something about what I feel the world is like, or what the human condition is like, or the way I feel about things at this moment. And so that to me is a discovery process. It's usually, I have an inkling of what it might be, but that first draft is really discovering that theme and mm -hmm. then just trying to figure out how to make that story match that theme, how the, the theme and the plot are intertwined and how the theme and the characters are, how the character changes over the course of that story are intertwined. So that is a discovery process that matters to me regardless of what age I'm writing. Uh, in terms of what makes middle grade distinct is it's just my, my adult characters tend to be somehow losers. They've made mistakes and they're not necessarily the most competent people in the world. And I think that's just because it reflects how I feel about myself. Like if I put myself in the situation, I'm not the big hero who's going to solve the problem. You're gonna have to really work at me to get me to sort of take charge of my own destiny and then do something noble and big that will affect other people. I feel my kid characters, are not saddled by uh, decades of self-awareness and mm -hmm. disappointment and bumps and scars. They are uh, usually ready to charge into the action. So that's a sort of a, and I, I, I feel like that's something that is important to write for kids because what I'm basically trying to do is I'm trying to show them, you have agency. You mm -hmm. have the ability to change your world. You change your life and change your world. And even though, there are so many obstacles in your way right now, parents, school, authority, just the perception that you're a young person that doesn't have power and should not wield power. You do have that power and your mission, should you choose to accept that, is understanding what your power is and learning how to use it. And that's something that is a strain in my kid lit that's probably not always present or at least as clearly present as adults. And then the other thing, I'm borrowing this from uh, Paolo Bacigalupe, who's a great science fiction writer and has written YA. He feels his YA books that the readers uh, have a, a basic right to hope. You don't get to tell them things are hopeless. At the end, they have to know that they have hope. Adults, you can put that in your adult books, and I like to put that in my adult books, but adults do not have a, uh, an unalienable right to hope. 
that has to be earned. And if I don't give it to them, I don't feel bad about them because I don't owe them that. I do owe that definitely to kids. That's great. I love that. I love that. Uh, going back quickly to uh, your discussion on themes, it sounds like with Weird Kid, that theme, and correct me if I'm wrong, was pretty much pretty much present in your mind as you approached that book uh, in as far as a kid, you know, coming to a real kind of crossroads in, in, in his or her life. Has it, have you found with other books that you started off thinking this book was centered around one theme only to find halfway through the second, third draft that, oh no, it is completely something else. And then having to kind of U-turn it to, to kind of direct your thinking towards that. Yeah. Yeah. And usually, you know, that theme is usually sort of present early on, but it's vague and I don't even Mm -hmm. necessarily see it or have a hold on it. And then it's a matter of stripping away the other stuff that uh, doesn't express that theme and steering the stuff that's there more stronger towards this theme. The book I'm that's coming out uh, next summer, the summer of 2022 is Fenris and Mott. And it's about a girl who comes across the Fenris wolf from Norse mythology. And the Fenris wolf is the wolf that ultimately eats the moon. And I had a completely different version of this book originally. Um, it was about a girl that comes from, there's actually a boy at that time that comes from a hoarding background. I have, my parents were clinical hoarders. So I have that in my background and I, I want to write about that at some point. I haven't yet, but originally that was what I was going to do. And to me, the wolf represented a desire I had as a kid, which was just burn it all to the ground, haul it all away, start off with a clean slate, renewal. Uh, and destruction is actually sort of a liberating force. That was my initial plan for the book. And for whatever reason, that didn't work. I think the genre elements and the fun, the tone of that book did not match that really kind of sort of deep, disturbing uh, subject matter. So what that book became was it became about keeping promises. Um, Mott, the girl, sort of on impulse, when she finds Fenris in a recycling bin, she says, well, I promise to take care of you. And that became the theme, promises. So from there, I had to build her a background where people have broken promises to her. I had to ask myself, why is keeping a promise so important to her? So I gave her a background in which her father has broken promises to her. And then I thought about, well, the story really involves Ragnarok, which is the Norse prophecy of the end of the world. And Ragnarok is essentially, it's a prophecy as a promise. Somebody saying, I promise you, this is the way the world is going to go. So if I'm telling you the world is going to end this way, that's a promise. The world is going to end this way. And the promise every human being makes when they're born is that someday I promise to die. So those are other promises. So I wanted to give her promises that needed to be kept. And then I wanted to examine it from the angle, well, some promises should never have been made and you don't have to keep those promises. So when I landed upon that idea of promises, the book sort of took life beyond just an adventure of a girl with a wolf who eats everything in sight and has hijinks. Then the book became about something to the point that I hammered that promise theme way too much, too heavily in the first draft. I wanted to make sure that that theme was in the book. And then it just became a matter of stripping out some mm-hmm. of those hammer blows so that the reader didn't get numb to it. And so then when it comes to the times when you're not writing, uh, when you do uh, turn to books for, you know, just pleasure for, for your own uh, quiet time. What do you typically find yourself reading? Like what's kind of your go-to uh, you've have a, 
you feel you feel safe knowing you're going to like a book if it is this that or the other thing what would that what would that be i i love narrative nonfiction. Mm. so uh, uh Books that will, I love books that show me something I don't know about. So John McPhee, just an example, wrote a book called uh, Looking for a Ship. And he just booked passage on a cargo ship because apparently I didn't realize this. This is something you can do. You can book passage on a cargo ship. You travel steerage. So you, I guess they give you a cabin. I don't think they make you sleep on the top deck above those you know, cargo sure. uh, containers. But uh, the fun thing is, is that you have no schedule because if your ship ends up in a port and there's customs issues and you can't leave port for three months, that's where you are for three months. So it's seems to me a way of traveling either very cheaply or probably more likely a way to travel adventurously. So I learned all about the way cargo ships work and the way that kind of travel works and the, the kind of people that crew those ships and captain those ships. And I found that fascinating. That's the kind of thing I really like to read. Uh, what I usually end up reading though, are books from friends because <laughs> I read my friends' books to give them feedback or possible for blurbage or just to be supportive because they read my books and I'm gonna read their books. So usually what I end up reading are a lot of middle grade uh, science fiction and fantasy books, which is good for, um, you know, career research and keeping abreast of what's going on in the field, but it is not my first choice. Hmm. Sorry, okay. friends. I hope they don't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I love you all and your books are wonderful. Well, let's wind down and I'll ask you a few questions as we do. The first one being, what is your favorite movie that's based on a book? To me, an adaptation that I really appreciate is not just the reproduction of the book or a violation of the book, hmm. Um, it's something that has a reason to exist in and of itself. So it, it goes in a direction that the book didn't go in, but was present or expands it. Uh, it's not really a movie. It was a Netflix series called I'm Not Okay With This. Mm. It was on for only one season. And unfortunately, it got canceled because COVID uh, complicated the production. But it's a really good YA series about a girl that is discovering that she has very um, scary psychic powers. And it's a combination of that and a combination of discovering who she is as a person and what her relationships are with friends, with family. And it was based on a graphic novel by Charles Forsman, the same title, which, and I watched the series first, six episode series, and then I read the novel. And it was really interesting to see the nucleus of the graphic novel in the series and then see how the series changed it, expanded upon it. Uh, combined characters and gave itself a reason for being. So I, uh, that's the one that most recently impressed me. Fun fact: I went to high school with Charles. He was did you really two grade? He was two grades behind me. I didn't know him well, but yeah, yeah he did go to my high school. Yeah, did, could, you, could you tell? Was there something about him? Because that is a very, very disturbing graphic novel. So, so he, I'm trying to think. He was like when I was a senior. He was like a sophomore. So, but he was, he was very much in with like the punk kids and like, yeah. that was kind of his, his crew, his group. So it's not uh, completely out of, uh, out of the realm of understanding right. when he crumbled. Cause he had, a, he has another uh, Netflix. Uh, the end of the effing world is also uh, oh. his that's oh, on Netflix that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So nice little, nice little. Yeah, cool. Cool. Um, Tiny world. Yes. Next question then. Uh, is there a book or a series you're willing to admit you've either never read or never finished? 
there's billions of them and I've stopped feeling shame about that. You know? <laughs> when the conversations would happen about them, I would just sort of quietly go, oh yeah, uh -huh. but no, I've never read uh, any George R. R. Martin at mm. all. Um, a lot of the big epic fantasy series, I've never read Wheel of Time, Robert Jordan. Uh, some of the stuff that, uh, no pun intended, the foundational stuff of science fiction, the classics, I've never read any of the foundation mm. books. Um, there's probably, you know, there's a lot of content and I'm not a fast reader and I no longer <laughs> feel shame at passing up some of that content. And I've decided also, if I start a book, but do not finish it, I'm going to count that as reading the book. Hmm. If I start a series and don't finish it, I'm going to count that as reading the series. Cause I feel oftentimes like from the first 200 pages or from the first volume of a series, like I probably got what's really appealing about it. I probably got the gist of it. And if I need to know the rest of what happened, Wikipedia is fantastic for that. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And then finally, what is the last great book that you've read? Uh, let's see. I'm going to say there've been some really great ones, but I'm going to say uh, Game of Fox and Squirrels, which is a middle grade novel by Jen Reese. It just won the Oregon State Book Award for children's fiction. And it's the kind of stuff that I can't write because the, the genre element, the fantasy element is very subtle. Uh, and it, it deals with, you know, uh, deep issues of um, abusive relationships with an element of talking animals in a way that uh, I think critics don't call that necessarily fantasy or science fiction. I think they call it fabulous, but it's just really beautifully handled. It's, it's really beautifully written. And at the end, it kind of gave me a window into how you can write about really disturbing subjects and at the end have it feel really triumphant. So I really admire that book. That's a terrific book and I recommend it. It's, I think it's been out for less than a year, so it's still fresh. Mm, great. Well, Greg, your newest book, Weird Kid, is out on July 20th. Congratulations, and I wish you and this book all the best. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was fun talking to you. That brings us to the end of this episode. I want to thank Greg for joining me again. His newest middle grade, Weird Kid, is out on July the 20th. So I hope you'll check that out. Also check out some of his other books, Cog, Voyage of the Dog, uh, Kid vs. Squid. Also, if you haven't already, check out some other great episodes where I am able to talk to some middle grade and YA authors. I'm Brock Shelley, and until next time, keep reading. <laughs>